Well, good afternoon. We're a couple of minutes early. People will still be walking in, but I think we can go ahead and start. This began with an email last year from Mike, Mike Cope, saying, do you already have your lineup for the Restoration History track? Do you know what three classes you're doing in 2018? I was in England doing research. I wrote back, no, I, I haven't even thought of that. Could I talk you into doing the history of the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. This is our 75th anniversary. I thought about that. That's a big topic, a history of 75 years. I said, um, normally I do the last class. Friday, 3.15, everybody's tired. Give me the last class from the program. I'll take that. And uh, so that's what I've, I've been in here for several years doing the Friday class. But I said, I don't want to do a Friday because that would be talking about myself. So I would rather do all the years before me. So I'll go first and just sort of do a sweep of 39 years from 1943 to 82. So that's what we're doing. Today is just sort of an introduction to lectureships and to Pepperdine's lectureship. Tomorrow then, Rubel Shelley will speak and do the first 15 years after I became director. So that's 83 through 97. Then Rick Gibson will do starting in 98, which is very appropriate. That was his first year to do the cover, and he's done 21 covers. So he'll do my last 15 years and the first 16, six years of my cope, including this year. So that's how we divided it up. So how do we begin? Where is the first use of the word lectures or lectureship in our history? Who, who would have put on a program? I'm pretty sure I'm right that it's the Missouri Christian Lectures. And that started with a group of guys having lunch in uh, 1879. And they said, why don't we have a, a lecture program? Now, I, I do not know who in that group said, let's, let's call it lecture instead of preaching. Uh, that would have been interesting to know. But I, and I'd also like to know where they were having lunch and uh, what they had. But, but it was 1879. It took them two years. The first Missouri Christian Lecture this will be on the exam in a moment, so take good note. 1881. And they kept that going for about 10 or 12 years. I think 1892 was the last one. Do we have any at Pepperdine? I wondered if you were going to ask. Yeah, I'm reading. I don't know where I found these three, but I have three volumes in the Heritage Center. The Missouri Christian Lectures for 1886, 87, and 88. So I have three years. They're in the Rushford Center in that top row behind glass, locked, so you can't get up there and take them. But if you need to research them, we'll get them down for you. So we do have three. So who would have spoken at that in the 1880s? I think you could guess. It'd be Isaac Garrett, the editor of the Christian Standard, James Harvey Garrison, the editor of the Christian Evangelist, uh, J.W. McGarvey, the president of the College of the Bible, and so on. And you look at the titles. I mean, they would say, Great idea, great concept. I don't know why it ended in 1892. I don't know why somebody else didn't pick it up. What fascinates me about the program is David Lipscomb himself was invited and traveled all the way. It moved to different parts of Indiana. It was, uh, I mean, Missouri. It was in Independence outside Kansas City more often than not. But it was in Columbia where the University of Missouri is. And then this year of 1891, due north from Columbia up to Moberly, where there's a Christian college today that Independent Christian Church has in Moberly. Two miles out of Moberly, two or three miles west, is a little town called Huntsville. 
And that's, this is Randolph County. This is north central Missouri. That's where the Missouri Christian Lectures were in 1891. And they gave Lipscomb Wednesday night and they gave him an hour and a half. I never gave anybody at my program an hour and a half. I mean, guys like Walling took an hour and a half, but I never gave anybody permission. To. And, uh, and they gave him an hour and a half because he had just written a book called Civil Government that outraged, as far as I can see, everybody in the country. Everybody in the church, disciples, Christian church, churches of Christ, nobody agreed with Lipscomb because he said, I don't think Christians should be involved in civil government. There are two kingdoms. We're part of the kingdom of God. Let's be good citizens in the other kingdom. Let's obey their laws, but let's not vote for them. It only encourages them. Let's not uh, get involved. <laughs> let's not, and let's not run for office ourselves. Well, nobody agreed with that. But they, the, the powers that be in Missouri said, come on out. Give your arguments. We'll give you, a, you know, an hour and a half. And he, get, he, he had one person, from all the reports I can read, there was one person amening him all night long. He only had one guy on his side, a guy named J.W. Randall. And all the others were outraged at this. And McGarvey talks about it in the Christian Standard. And he says... When, when he got up that night, boy, the place was charged with, there was hostility. This is Lipscomb from Nashville, and he's trying to get us to keep from voting and running for office and all that. And McGarvey says, the members of the audience were there. Now I'm quoting exactly in the Christian stand. I couldn't make this up for anything. The members of the audience were there with shotguns <laughs> and torpedoes and dynamite bombs to blow his castle sky high. Well, I'm assuming he doesn't mean that literally. I'm assuming he means everybody showed up with their rhetorical armor on and they were going to fight his viewpoint and they were going to raise their hand and challenge him. I hope it's not literally that he, if so, this was one of the most exciting lectureships ever. I had plenty of slings and arrows, but to my memory, I was never torpedoed on this campus doing the Pepperdine lecture. Shotguns, torpedoes, and dynamic, dynamite bombs. Then he says, only one person vocally supported Lipscomb's position, J.W. Randall. However, Lipscomb believed that no one was able to adequately meet his arguments. And then McGarvey says, Lipscomb led us along a line of scripture evidence that was new to many. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Lipscomb had his way of thinking. He said, here's, here's all the scriptures that I think teach. Leave civil government alone and just get serious about the kingdom of God. He took us along a line that was new to many, and that few were able to grapple with on the spur of the moment, although everyone felt that he was certainly wrong. There were very few prepared to show it in a speech of 10 minutes. The way it worked in those days, if you raised your hand, you could have 10 minutes to destroy the person's argument. We never did that here. At, uh, <laughs> uh, but I think Lagarde Smith thought about, boy, hey, you know, he wanted me to do that. Um, but we never did that. But, he, but nobody raised their hand to take on Lipscomb for, during that hour and a half because they didn't know how to defeat his argument. So that's, 
that's sort of how lectureships began. Uh, where did Lipscomb get that idea? Well, I think maybe some of you know that from all the people who studied it, it and, and he probably didn't even know where he got it, but the person he is most like is St. Augustine in the City of God, 426 AD. In the early 5th century, Augustine writes the City of God, and he's pretty much saying, stay out of government. And, and stay out of civil government and, and devote yourself to the city of God, not the city of man, not the world. We're part of the kingdom of God. Whether Lipscomb knew how, how Augustinian he was, I don't know. But uh, that was his book, Civil Government. And, and Lipscomb said, I had a wonderful time going to the lectures. You know, he said, I met all these people that I knew about. I'd never shaken hands with them. He just thought it was a wonderful time. Well, when did it begin for us? Jesse P. Sewell. Now, Bill Banowski writes his PhD dissertation before he's president of Pepperdine at USC, and it's the history of the Abilene Lectures, and he calls it the mirror of a movement. I doubt if the Pepperdine Lectures have been a mirror of a movement. Mm -hmm. I'll let the other two coming after me describe how, how you would describe it, but I don't think it's mirrored much of the movement. Um, but, but Bill was arguing the Abilene Lectures really have reflected Churches of Christ. And he says it begins in 1918. And I think that's right. Although something was going on in February all the way back to 1912, uh, they didn't publish 1918. What a shame. But they published the next year. And in the very first one they published, great picture of Jesse P. Sewell, president of Abilene Christian. And he says, the ACC Bible Lecture Week. That was the original name. By the time I went to school there, it was just the lectureship, lectureship, lectureship. When I took over this program, Pepperdine's was the lectureship. And so I, I, the tape is running. I'll go ahead and tell you how that changed. David Davenport, the president, said to me, I don't like that word lectureship. I don't even think it's in the dictionary. <laughs> and he said, can we just call it the Bible lectures? And I said, I like that. Let's do it. We did it the next year, and nobody, I think, even recognized it. We got no complaints. Nobody even said, that's an improvement. I don't think anybody even knew we changed from lectureship to lecture. But here's how it started. Sewell says, ACC Bible Lecture Week is a regular part of the program of Abilene Christian College. The last week of February every year. Well, by the time I went to school, it was the third week in February. It started out as the last week. The point is, if you live in West Texas and you're in Abilene, December, January, February, even a little March, those are wasted. Those are tough months. So you need to do something. If you're Abilene Christian, let's put on a program for our farmers. Once the harvest is in and before spring planting, boy, you got a period there where somebody wants something to do. They'll even go to Abilene <laughs> to do the, do the Bible lectures. And so it started the fourth week, but it moved to the third week. But it started out beginning on Sunday morning with worship and the Lord's Supper and all of that and ending on Friday night. Wow. It didn't stay that long, very long. In this first year, there's some great photographs. Here's one of the lectures by Maurice Ganot. He was a judge in Dallas. His uh, grandfather was uh, uh, General Richard Montgomery Ganot, Confederate general. Uh, his great-grandfather then would have been uh, John Allen Ganot, baptized. I wrote my master's thesis at Abilene on the Ganot family, so I'm, I know a lot about Maurice. He was a bachelor. And here he is speaking on the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. 
he and his two brothers had a law firm called Gano, Gano, and Gano Law Firm. And, and his one brother, William Beriah, was a graduate of Harvard Law School. And when I went, when, and of course a relative is Howard Hughes, and when Hughes died, and his mother was a devout member of the Church of Christ and all the Hughes family, Church of Christ, I went to Houston to interview Hughes' aunt because she, and by the way, that's online if you want to listen to it, hour and a half, that's at Jerry Rushford's Selected Works. I interviewed her, and uh, uh, her, her son came to introduce me to her, and he had taken over for Howard Hughes as the uh, president of Summa Corporation. And I went with permission from Howard White, the president, and Ron Phillips, the director of uh, uh, the dean of the law school, to say to him, if you would give us $7 million, we would name the Pepperdine Law School for William Beriah Gano, your grandfather, who was the Sunday morning teacher at the Pearl and Bryan Church of Christ in Dallas. I mean, the Gano's were thoroughly Church of Christ. And, and we would name our law school after a great lawyer from Harvard Law School. And, I, and so I went, I wanted to give my pitch. And after the interview with his mother, he said, where are you going to lunch? And I'm not, I'm not one to lie. I said, I'm going to McDonald's. So there's one right down at the corner. I love McDonald's. He said, would you be willing to tough it out at the Houston Country Club? So we went out to the Houston Country Club, and I made my appeal. And he didn't do it. But he did say, you really love your school, don't you? He had just sold that week TWA for $586 million. I knew he had $7 million to pay. You couldn't buy this law school now for $75 million, I don't think, to put your name on it. But this was $7 million in 1979. He should have listened to me. <laughs> turned it down. Anyway, there's Gano. Uh, here's one of the guy that really put it together. I didn't know this. I would have flunked this on the test. I would have said Jesse P. Sewell invented lectureship and laid out the way it would work. But he turned it over to A.R. Holton. Holton is really the guy who laid it out. I didn't know that. I'm a part of the Campbell Stone discussion list. And right now, we're discussing A.R. Holton. Yesterday, Tom Albright posted a, a long biographical sketch of A.R. Holton. Hot topic right now. And he's the guy that did it. And then um, here's a. Uh, F.L. Young giving a speech. This is Helen Young's grandfather. Helen Young was a Young before, you know, her mother married Maddox, but her mother was a Young. But Norville said, if you marry me, you'll be forever Young. That's why Bill Henniger and I entitled our biography of Norville and Helen, Forever Young. You know, the life of Norville and, and Helen Young. And then here's a, uh, the last one here I'll show you is... Um, the first president of Pepperdine, a great photograph of Batsell Baxter. Oh. This is 1919, 18 years before he becomes president of Pepperdine. And what topic is he speaking on in the lectures in 1919? Christian education. Well, you could have surprised me. There's Batsell Baxter talking about Christian education. He'd already been president of three colleges when he became president of Pepperdine. He was quite elderly by then. He only agreed to serve a brief time to get us going, and he served two years. Uh, anyway, there's 1919. And um, so what we're doing is all the Christian colleges then began having lectureships. Abilene was first, but Fried Hardman, Harding, Lipscomb. So when George Pepperdine started his school in 1937, did he start, did he think about having it the first year? He might have. Would have been a little too much the first year. 
but he had a great chairman of the Bible department in W.B. West. I'm a little surprised they waited six years. But they announced in 42, in the school year of 42-43, we're going to begin. And uh, they picked out uh, January. And uh, for nine years, W.B. West was the director of the program. And uh, it started with this one, Biblical Forum. So we started with Biblical Forum and Lectureship. And we were then the Pepperdine Bible Lectures after we dropped lectureship. And now it's Harvard. And uh, the church in the 20th century, January 25 to 29. And the model there was just to bring one speaker. And that was C.R. Nickel. So it opens with C.R. Nickel. The second year, it's called um, The Adequacy of the New Testament Church. And the speaker is Harvey Scott. The third year, though, they went to more than one speaker, but the main one this year on the church in these times, World War II was going on. Let's see, this was 45. The war was still going on. In 45, the main speaker was um, the president, Hugh Tyner, but John Allen Hudson, Basil Barrett Baxter, Ralph Wilburn, W.B. West himself. It, it became a little bit bigger program that year. And then, but the school really changed right here. When the war ended and all the GIs came home in the GI Bill, Little George Pepperdine College with 300 students, very much a Church Christ school, everybody going to chapel, everybody taking Bible, it became a football school overnight. And the student body was tremendously bigger. And uh, here we were playing football. And it was tough that, you know, to still maintain chapel and Bible classes and the Vermont Avenue Church of Christ at the edge of the campus. So this particular year, in uh, for this the fourth annual, January 21 to 26, this one is called Urgent Problems Facing the Post-War Church. Mm -hmm. And uh, the speaker that year, the main one, uh, was P.D. Wilmoth, along with uh, J.P. Sanders spoke, Frank Pack spoke for the first time, Homer Haley spoke. And then in 1947, um, it was called the Educational Program of the Lord. Now, they, they printed the photo from this year. They were getting all the preachers together. This was basically a program for preachers. It was, they weren't doing family things yet. They weren't doing things for children. In 47, the only speaker was Jesse P. Sewell. And Sewell came out, and you know he, that was a popular choice. Here in 48, Roy Palmer and Otis Gatewood were just getting ready to go to Germany and preach in the footsteps of Hitler. And here's L.D. Webb, who was one of our first graduates in the master's program. He was getting ready to go start Columbia Christian College in Portland, Oregon. Um, and then in 1949, the Church and Sound Doctrine, still having it in January, and the main speaker that year was E.W. McMillan. But if you go over to the Rushford Center, I have that photo on the wall that shows Marshall Keeble and Brother Mack and James Scott from Long Beach. They were the three speakers in 49. Put that in context. What was happening in downtown LA? You've seen the pictures of Billy Graham down like this, you know, and he's preaching under that tent. This was the beginning of Billy Graham in, in, in the summer of 49, in that tent in LA. And just a few miles away, Marshall Keeble, a black evangelist, is one of the major speakers at the Pepperdine Bible Life. Just putting that in context in 1949. That's interesting. Then in 1950, uh, it was the guy that we've been 
talking about A.R. Holton, the guy who had started Abilene way back in 1918. Holton came back to do the church today. Holton had been a missionary in Korea and several places. He is a larger-than-life figure. Holton, we need to know more about A.R. Holton. And then um, after Holton, the next year in 51, which was the last year for W.B. West, the major speaker was Norval Young. And, uh, but look at who Pepperdine lost after it became a football school. Think about this. Young Batsell Barrett Baxter with his PhD at USC heads back to Nashville to become the preacher at Hillsboro. Is that right? <laughs> Hillsboro and, uh, and the head of the Bible department at Lipscomb and the first speaker on radio at Herald of Truth, radio and TV. And, I mean, Baxter becomes our hero, our larger-than-life figure. You know, he is the son of the original Pepperdine president, but he doesn't stay at Pepperdine. He gives his life to Lipscomb. And Frank Pack leaves in 49. And Frank goes back for the beginning of 14 incredible years at Abilene Christian. How many preacher boys studied under Frank Pack between 49 and the end of 63? <laughs> Jim Wilbur. Not all of them turned out to be great preachers, you know, but I mean, some <laughs> Jim's one of the few people I can tease. Uh, yeah, those were great years, weren't they, Pack? And, uh, but we got him to come back at the end of 63, and he starts in 64 as the minister of Culver Palms. They had their 75th anniversary Sunday. I, I attended. Great experience. And there was a lot of people talking about Frank Pack. But he comes back as head of the Bible department at Pepperdine. So we got Pack back. We never got Baxter back. But um, what about W.B. West? He leaves after doing nine great lecture programs. And he goes to Harding because he wants to build a graduate school. The Harding Graduate School of Theology, Graduate School of Religion. And he does it in Memphis. He starts it in, in Searcy. But it moves to Memphis in 1957 or 58. One of the first graduates is Maurice Hall. I just saw his son in here taking pictures. Ron Hall is our university photographer. Um, so and when you're losing people like Batsell Barrett Baxter to Nashville and W.B. West to Searcy in Memphis and Frank Pack to Abilene, uh, boy, it was decimated. And so now uh, we come in to five pretty low years. 52, 53, 4, 5, and 6. It starts out with, um, it, it's still a lecture program here, Changeless Values in a Changeless World, Christian Lectureship and Christian Service Workshop, little title change there. And, um, but it's getting pretty low here. And by the last two, there's not even a lectureship really. It's just a series of fellowship dinners. And this one is called Fellowship Week. But here it was Fellowship Month. I think it was four straight Friday nights or four straight Saturday nights. And the following year, 57, no lectureship at all. So the lectureship starts off good with W.B. West, and now it falls. And isn't this surprising? Because when are churches of Christ growing in post-World War II America? In the 50s, everybody's building church buildings. You know, Payton is building them by the thousands, you know, the Payton Construction Company. And... Um, our schools are doing well. Lovett Christian is getting started, but not out here in California. The church has lost confidence in the direction Pepperdine's going, and nobody's coming to the lectures. Now it changes with Norval Young and J.P. Sanders coming, and Norval comes back, and he's going to start the lectures in 58, 
and, uh, and they'll always be in March. But he decides we won't just have one, we'll have two. We'll have one in August. And we go through t 10 years with two lecture programs. As a former lecture director, this gives me nightmares. <laughs> it was hard for me to just say that to you. I'm going to break out in hives here. <laughs> to do two in one year is insane, unless they're really small, and they weren't. <laughs> Norval's a dreamer. So here are the 10 big ones in March. So Norval comes in, and in 1958, uh, God challenges you. Now, you know, in the program this year, I listed who the opening night speaker was every year. So in that first one in uh, 58, the spring one, I listed John Bannister. So he was at Skillman Avenue. The, the director for the five bad years, and this doesn't mean he was bad, was Joseph White. And I love Joe White. And I just think he got dealt a, a tough hand. And uh, all the, the great scholars left, and Pepperdine was decimated. And it wasn't staying very close to the church. And Joe White, the son of L.S. White, great Dallas preacher, he's trying to hang on, but he's down to four fellowship dinners you know, in, a, in a month. But he hangs on and is the director. It's right here, and I'm the one that put it here. It must be right. He was still the director that first year of 58. But after that, Norval turned it over to Rex Johnston. I don't know if any of you remember Rex Johnston, but he, got to, he, only, he only put together four or five years, but he put together the biggest years in our history. Uh, he, it was amazing, the, the job that he did. So here's the programs that, that Norval puts together. 58, um, 59, 60, Christ-centered life, and this one, sharing Christ with all the world, the final night is this photo that I put in this year's program, right here, chandelier and all. This is the Shrine Auditorium where the Oscar ceremonies were held. And here we are, packed in, the, the balcony is packed, the Shrine Auditorium, and the date is March 23, 1961. And the uh, speaker that year in 61 was Don Morris, the president of Abilene Christian. So here's Don Morris back. The song leader, of course, was Pat Boone. So here you got Pat Boone leading singing, and the Shrine Auditorium is packed and all that. And that's 61, but it's about to get even bigger because when you get over here to 62, this turned out to be the biggest one ever. We've never surpassed this. The Strategy for Spiritual Freedom final night was at the Los Angeles Sports Arena, and that's the picture here at the top. Norval always said that there were over 10,000 people here, and so most of us have copied that. I talked to Rex Johnson one time, and I said, you can tell me the truth. Lectureship director to lectureship director. We all know what Norval was like. He'd walk into any auditorium of 100 people and say to me, looks like 400 people. <laughs> this was just how Norval lived. I mean, it's just exaggerated everything. So if Norval says there's over 10,000, it always grew with Norval. I, I remember when he told me there were 11,000. But Rex Johnson said by actual count, it was a little over 8,000. But we've never equaled that again. Let's say it was 8,500. We never got that big again. I mean, what a night. Pat Boone leading singing, and the Abilene Chorus was there. They sang, and the Pepperdine Chorus sang, and George Pepperdine is over here on the gurney. He's yes, going to take I the microphone. Were you there? And he speaks for the last time. Were you there that night? They, they wheel him. Were you there? Wow, how many people were there that night? One, two, three, four, 
five of you were there. Wow. Well, that is amazing. He comes and, and speaks and, and says goodbye. He dies four months later on July 31, 62. Anyway, that, so Norville's got two going in each year. Uh, the one in 63, they run the picture of the year before. And this was still big, Christ our Contemporary. And Bill Bonowski is brought out to run the program this year. And, uh, and 64 is still big. 63, 64, still big. 65, a little less so. And then these two, less. What happened? Let me show you the um, summer lecture. So here's the same 10 years. These are smaller in August. But uh, they're called Vacation Lectureship, Summer Bible Lectureship, Bible lectureship, summer Bible lectureship, summer Bible lectureship. Now this year they said Christ for our contemporaries. What was the theme for the big one? Christ our contemporary. And then the summer one, Christ for our contemporaries. And then here, that's uh, 63, 64, and here's where it all ended. Confronting Moral Issues, 8th <coughs> Summer Bible Lectures, August 7 to 12. I don't know if you know your calendar, but the Watts riot began late on the evening of the 11th, three miles from the campus. It had one more day to go. I haven't even gone back to the graphic to find out, did they finish the lecture program? Or did the word come across the freeway? It was on the other side of the freeway. I mean, we're talking about 34 people killed, 1,500 arrested. It lasted six days. I forget how many thousands of guardsmen came in. And of course, the whole world is watching it on television. And the Bible lectures are three miles away. And, and the neighborhood is pretty dangerous. I'm guessing without knowing that when the word hit late on the 11th, that somebody got up on the 12th and said, uh, you know, we have a whole day's program scheduled, but our advice is that you all need to start heading for home. We don't, this is volatile. We don't know how long it's going to last. It's out of control right now. I'm just guessing. I do know that Helen called Norval, who was in Washington, D.C., and said a riot has started on the other side of the freeway. And he said, yeah, I'm watching it. And, and she, he said, I'll rush to the airport. And her advice was, I don't think you should come back. I think you better stay where you are. We're probably evacuating anyway. So Norval was not there for that week. But now, the, after that, the lecture themes change. And like, um, this one is on the, the uh, fruit of the spirit the next year. This one is about opening the door to the city. Isn't that prophetic? Go back to the big ones. The one then, the uh, next year after the riot is called Victorious Living Today, 66. And this one, Focus on Faith in Action, 67. Um, so that, that's the year, that's the end of two each year. Now we're down, uh, we're, we're going to be down now to just one a year. We're going back, and now not as many people are coming into Los Angeles. You know, the, it's changed. And we go back to one lectureship in March, not March and August, not two. And so in 68, um, it's called Accent on Concern. These are the things that concern the Christian. And this one is a search for understanding. And uh, this one is 69. Now, the young man is killed. Melissa, what's his name? We have the, what's his name? Harry Kimmel. 
uh, Larry Kimmons, dies on, I think, uh, the 12th, three days before. I had been with Bill Vanowski the previous fall with Elton Trueblood. He was rewriting his book on the Playboy philosophy. Nor, uh, Elton was helping him rewrite it. I was running footnotes. Bill and I went to dinner one night, the Holiday Inn, Thursday night. This is October. This is Richmond, Indiana, Earlham School. And he said, why don't you come to Pepperdine and work for me? And you know, that I, I said, I, I can't leave this church. They just let me off for four months. I'm preaching in Hazel Park, Michigan. He said, well, come to the lectures next year. I'll get you on the program. Program was all settled. He couldn't get me on. But I came anyway. And uh, they sent out a young kid to pick me up in a Volkswagen. Uh, his name was Steve Limley. He had just married one of Norval Young's daughters, I think, or something. He was 24. I was 26. He was already married. I was single. He picked me up at LAX and he said, we got a problem. Uh, our night watchman has shot and killed a young boy on our campus, 15 teenager. And our campus has barricaded. The lectures have been moved to the Inglewood Church of Christ. You're not staying in the president's home with Norville and Helen Young as was promised you. Uh, you wouldn't be able to get there. You're staying with the church secretary and her husband next door to the Inglewood Church. Uh, it, what a, it was just a whole different experience. That was my first time to be in California, my first time to be a, at a lecture program. And it was a search for understanding. And then uh, 1970, and now Abideth Hope. This is the one that surprises me. Rick, you great designer of covers. Um, why would they put the ocean and water? Everybody knew we had, had this property given to us in Malibu. And they know we're moving to Malibu. But at this time, nothing was said about moving the whole school to Malibu. It was still going to be, we're going to have a Malibu extension. We're going to have two campuses. We got LA. Am I right, David, or am I missing that? At that point, we're still, you know, Malibu is going to be an extension. And, and we've got a lot of problems in the inner city. And we've got a lot of people saying, some of you are going to run out on us here in the inner and move to Malibu. And then we put on the cover. And we call it for such a time as this, and and we, you know, it's like, why didn't they call about it Malibu? Here we come. I mean, it was the ocean and that. Then the last one was God's work in our day, and now we moved to Malibu, and it really changes. Tony Ash is lured out here from Abilene. Tony was the Pied Piper, and uh, I love Tony. I brought him to Michigan to speak. Um, he, I took him for a lot of classes. And now he comes out, and he's going to be the head of the Bible department at the new campus on Malibu. And Tony was perpetually youthful. He just never grew old. He was a kid. And, and, but he was a great scholar, and he was fun to be around. And his first year, he did evangelism, but it was evangelism through renewal. Let's get ourselves straight before we... It was called Inside, Outside. Great, great theme. The second year was on integrity after renewal. Simply yes, sir. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And Christian integrity. Um, I couldn't go to this one because I was home getting married. But I was here for Rule Lemons on opening night. It was in the cafeteria. We didn't have Firestone Fieldhouse. The next year we had Firestone. And this was called The New Man. And this was my first time to ever get to be a keynote speaker at any lectureship. I was 32, and I was Monday morning. And uh, it started Sunday night, went to Wednesday night. Uh, I was introduced 
Big Don Williams led singing. I was introduced, I think, by Howard White. But Banowski was there listening. And um, I was living in Santa Barbara getting a PhD in American Church History at UCSB. And uh, I wasn't even thinking of moving to, to Pepperdine. This was 75. But that was my first chance to get. But then Tony got discouraged after three years. And he said, I'm going back to Texas. He felt like he had made a mistake. And uh, so Carl Mitchell becomes the director. And in 76, it's called Abounding in the Work of the Lord. But um, there's not really a program. He sends out these kind of letters. This one is called uh, Heritage and Destiny, a study of the Restoration Movement. Now, this was a lovely program and quite big. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that was the year I came. I became the minister of the University Church, preached my first sermon here in Elkins on April 2, 78. And, two, and we moved into our house March 27, where we still live. And two weeks later, we're attending the Bible lectures. And I taught a class on Bible translation. That was, that was a fine year. The next year, Carl did It's Great to Be a Christian. And this year, he did For Such a Time as This. But then he moved to Harding. So we lost Tony Ash back to Abilene. Well, he went to Austin first and then Abilene. And then we, Carl Mitchell heads off to Harding. And um, I had told Howard White, I would love to be the director of the Bible lectures. And he said, I don't have many gifts. You know, I don't have many arrows in my quiver that will help me recruit outstanding members of the Church of Christ to Pepperdine. Now, you're the member, minister of the university church, and you teach in the religion. So I've already got you here. What's in it for me to give you the Bible lectures? I need to get somebody else here. And he was right, absolutely right. And he got Mike Armour, who had just finished his Ph.D. at UCLA. And Mike came, and Mike did uh, The Magnificence of Christ, great theme. And he did Light, lo Light Life, and Love, the Ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John. But then he becomes president of Columbia Christian College. So I'm in Heidelberg <clears throat> serving for 12 months. Uh, Lori and I got there September 1, come home September 1. I, I grew up believing that, um, that the turning point in my life, where, when I would know what I was going to do with my life, would happen between the age of 39, 40, and 41. I did that from researching everybody from Christopher Columbus, who was 40 when he discovered America, to Norval Young at 41, coming back to save Pepperdine. I tracked all these lives and said, when do these people who did so much, what age were they? And, and I was telling my wife years before, I will know at 39, 40, 41, I hope I know at 39, where God is going to send me and what I'm going to do. And on my 39th birthday, we were in Delamont, Switzerland. Hillary had just turned two. Ashley wasn't born yet. And, um, and I, I was thinking, wow, I'm 39. I guess we're going back to Pepperdine. I, but I'm not minister of the university church anymore. But I, I can teach. I still felt a little restless. We came home. The phone rang in the kitchen of Morehouse. That's where the old faculty phone was. Maybe it's still there. In the kitchen of Morehouse, in the faculty apartment. And it was Howard White calling, you know, transatlantic call saying, Mike Armour is going wherever, Columbia Christian to be president. Do you want to be director of the Bible lectures? 
And I said, you know I do, but we need to pray about it. And, um, but I need to tell you something. If you're happy with the Bible lectures, if you like the way they're going, I don't think I'm your guy. And he said, tell me a little more. Where are you going with this? And I said, well, number one, and this I know this will be a deal breaker, and I don't feel bad about it, but I will not work with a committee. And every lectureship, a committee, every lectureship has been put together by a committee in the 20th century. I know I'm on the committee at Pepperdine. Fifteen of us on the committee. What kind of program are you going to get with that? You know, Charlie Runnels would come in and say, I want Bill Bonowski. And I would say, well, I want my favorite. Norval and Helen, would, I, we want, everybody would get their favorites, but we're, we're not putting together a cutting edge program. We're putting together, you know, a program put together by a committee. And I said, I want you to trust me that I'm not out to destroy Pepperdine or the church. Let me have one year to put it together alone, and hopefully more years than that. And I will strive for unity. I'm not out to anger anybody. But there's a second thing that's very important to me. I don't believe just putting, putting out a great program is going to bring people here. And that's been our strategy. I'm better face to face. I like to preach. If you will give me enough travel money to let me circle the churches and tell them why they ought to come to Pepperdine. Those were my two conditions. And I, so we, Lori and I prayed about it. Howard called back a few days later and he said, okay, no committee. I thought, boy, when you announce this back home, Jim Wilburn is gonna let you have it. Or somebody who's on that committee is gonna say, time out. We enjoy being on that committee. No committee. And, uh, and then give me travel money. So I went straight to Stockton, my first church. I said, I'll give you dorm 10. It's the closest walk. It's right there behind what is now the Howard White Center. I'll give you dorm 10. It's yours until Jesus returns. Mm -hmm. As long as you fill it. Yeah. It's got 50 beds. If you fill it, it's yours. And they did for quite a few years. And then they got to where... They were filling it in partnership with Arizona. So they were reaching out to others saying, help us fill our dorm. And uh, they no longer have that one. Then I went to San whatever, right below the airport in Oakland, San, San Leandro. Went to San Leandro and said, you're dorm 11, and it's yours until Jesus returns, as long as you can fill it. I'm, I see Rick Gibson's laughing here. The last year that I served as lecturer, Rick went with me when I do my promotions. And then he got up to tell everybody, you know, Jerry's not going to be directing it next year, but Mike Cope and I are, and we want you to come. And he described me to this audience. He said, now, we all know what Jerry's like, and you know, I can see all of you laughing at him. He said, Jerry is a perfect blend. I thought, where is this going? <laughs> is a perfect blend of John the Baptist and P.T. Barnum. <laughs> well, that brought several dinners to, you know, the applause went on in Sacramento and Livermore and Visalia. Yes, he, he gave the same speech every night that we went along. And uh, so when I got back, 
you know, I, did, I, didn't, I came back like September, and the church leaders workshop was the first thing I had to do. I couldn't plan. I mean, I got, and I had to pick an associate, and I chose a woman named Kenneth Thomas. I'd heard of her father. I knew Alonzo Welch, and I called her and said, you and your husband have just arrived, James Thomas, professor of English, and would you want to be associate director of church relations? And she said yes. We had never met. But I came back and met Kenneth. She was great. Uh, and then my best friend was Randy Mayu, and he was sort of a cutting-edge evangelist over here in Long Beach. And I said, Randy, you and Kenneth need to get, get together. My first program for the Church Leaders Workshop, I want to call it Richland Hills, Can It Happen Here? You know, Richland Hills was booming. Had Rick actually gone there by then? Mm, 19, maybe he went a few years later. No, I don't think he was there. It was John, the minister before him. But uh, here they came to teach us, you know, Richland Hills. That was my very first program when I came back. But Howard called me in and he said, okay, I've given you your way and um, no committee. What's going to be your title? And I said, I would like to do biblical books. And just in seven lectures? What book are you going to exhaust in seven lectures? And I said, I thought I would do my first one on Titus. <laughs> Titus. <laughs> Has anybody ever done Titus? I said, I hear there's a new sc a scholar named uh, Carol Osborne, and, um, and he's over here at Harding Graduate School, and I'm going to have him be my, I need an expositor. I'm going to have an expositor come every year because that's not my strength. So I called him and I said, you don't know me, Dr. Osborne, but would you come out to Pepperdine? I want to do Titus. I know you're really good in the pastoral epistles. Would you come out and be the expositor and guide my seven keynote speakers through Titus? And then I said this. I said, Dr. Osborne, is there enough material in Titus for seven keynote lectures? And there was a long pause on the phone. And he said, Dr. Rushford, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to forget you just asked me that question. <laughs> I took that to mean there's a lot of material in Titus. And I don't know what I'm talking about here. So he came. And of the seven speakers, two stayed with me for 30 years. And the other five, I mean, loved the program, and they, they, came, they came off and on. Uh, the opening night speaker, I don't think, ever came back. Um, right from the beginning, I had one uh, black speaker, African-American speaker each year. And I think he, he was from Oklahoma City, and I think he came again later, and his daughter was my student worker for a while. But I chose Rubel Shelley and Landon Saunders, uh, Landon didn't come very often, but I chose Lynn Anderson, and Lynn and Rubel stayed with me to the end. And, um, and I thought they already knew each other pretty well, but you know, I'm assuming everybody knew each other pretty well, and that first year we were all sort of getting to know each other. But when Howard White came in and said, what are, how are you going to do this? No committee. You're going to do Titus. I'm giving you some travel money. He said, um, here was the word he used, how are you going to position this? And I said, I've thought about this a lot. 
And I'm going to do this responsibly. This is the word I used. But I am going to responsibly position this a little left of center. His eyes snapped open. I was in, we were in his office inside his home there at Brockhaus. His eyes snapped open and he said, why? <laughs> Doesn't everybody want to be in the middle of the road? You know, every politician, every, everybody says, I represent the middle. You know, I'm in the middle. And I said, there are other lectureships doing a great job in the middle. And he said, why do you want us to be left of center? I said, number one, we're in California. Everybody thinks we're already left of center. Why disappoint them? Uh, everybody coming out assumes this is, you know, la la land. This is California, and they're definitely left of center. So let's accept that. But let's do it responsibly. But also, lectureships ought to be where you stretch. I don't want people to come and just be reminded this is what we believe. We want to stretch. We want to take on the tough issues. And uh, I chose in my very first year a boy I went to school with at Oklahoma Christian. And we, we hooked up again at Airplane for a while. We were there, named Oliver Howard. And uh, did he put me on the map or what? <laughs> uh, years later, the most requested tape was Oliver Howard's Neither Male Nor Female. And he did that in his very first year when nobody heard it. I had him in the chapel. Within the second year, he was in Smothers Theater and stayed there until 1994 when his job as a lawyer, he just he couldn't come out anymore. But he came for, he came for over a decade. He came about 12 straight years. And uh, he took on the toughest topics, not just women in the church, but elders one year and fellowship and on and on. And, uh, but we began with that idea of a little left of center. So I'm trying to set up tomorrow and, fr and uh, Friday. I have no idea where we're going. I said to Rubel, will you do the second day? Because I can't talk about my own years. And so tomorrow, we will go from 1983, Titus. Rubel is one of the seven. And we will go to 97. Rubel is a keynote speaker four times in those 15 years. He spoke closing night one year. He spoke opening night one year, the year that people thought might have been the most unique was when we did upper room discourse and everything in John 13 to 17 is the words of Jesus. It's all in red ink. And we opened with Rubel doing Jesus washing the disciples' feet and ended with Max Licato challenging us to unity from John 17. I mean, how do you beat that, really? And years later, people would say to me, they've all been great, but you know that one in 95 when you did, um, you know, that, may have, that was really unusual. The whole thing was built on the words of Jesus. So Rubel was a major three-day class speaker every year for 14 of those 15 years. We, neither of us can quite remember why he didn't come the second year. I think he was in Russia or out, he was out of the country. But he came every other year. So keynote speaker four times, major class teacher every year. So that'll be tomorrow. And Rubel's here. You want to say anything about tomorrow or not? No, I don't want to say you, tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you go home tonight and just think of what you want to say. And uh, so he'll have the same thing that, uh, you know, that I uh, put up here. We, he'll have the, uh, those 15 years, we'll have the covers up to help you sort of do a walk down memory lane. And then Rick Gibson will go on, the, uh, on Friday 
And Rick will start with 98. He wasn't even working for Pepperdine in 98, but he came down and helped us do the cover. He was the minister at Mission Viejo. But the next year he was at Pepperdine, and that was the year we went to Four Colors. And we never have looked back since then. What he designed in 1999 was a game changer, the year we did Psalms. And um, so, Rick, do you want to say anything about Friday? Yeah, as I've uh, prepared for this, I've uh, been interested just to think about my own vivid memories of where I was at that time in my life, uh, at the church, before I came to Pepperdine, and where Pepperdine was along the way. So I look forward to sharing some reflections of, of that, maybe pull the curtain back, do a little bit of behind the scenes, uh, tell you the secrets that nobody else will tell you about. <laughs> uh, I've got a few of them. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a time. It will be rich. I've said to both of these men, this is just personal reflections. There's no right or wrong way to do this lecture. Just tell us, what did you experience in those years? So I hope this has sort of set the table. I wanted to leave myself three minutes to say this. Where did this all begin for me? I went to Christian High School in grade 11 because I had run away from home in grade 10. I was having a tough adolescence. My parents sent me off to Great Lakes Christian, where I promptly got kicked out, sent home. But I was there long enough for the lectures. And they kept saying, lectureship is coming. Lectureship is coming in January, 1960. I went there in September. And I had no idea what that meant. But that, that, that four-day period obviously changed my entire life. There were people there from all over the province of Ontario. There were missionaries coming back from Papua New Guinea and India. There were Americans coming up. There were the greatest preaching I'd ever heard, the singing. And everybody had exhibits in our gymnasium. And I just fell in love. And I've never fallen out of love. Um, you know, I made a beeline last night to thank all the singers on the stage. And I rushed over to shake hands with Mike Cope. And that was a great beginning last night. I was born for this kind of fellowship. And um, so when Howard said, do you want this job? I knew I did, but I had some restrictions. But he never challenged me again on, uh, on the committee. He said, uh, and there were some people one time that came to President Davenport to criticize me in his presence. And it took all afternoon, and David heard them out. And I didn't know what he was going to say, but in the end, he said, well, I've heard you out. I gave you your say. But I think Jerry's done a pretty remarkable job of unifying us. And uh, he reaches everybody. And we invite the non-class, and we invite the premillennials, and we invite the scholars and the Christian churches and the disciples. And we have some guests every year from outside of the Restoration Movement. And he, he defended me. And I guess at one level I thought he would. <laughs> you know, we hadn't talked about it. But he did, and they left unhappy, and I don't think ever came back. So you can't please everybody. But I think I, I put it on the right course, and I, and I love what's happened the last six years. Lori, we went home last night, and Lori said, what did you think? She knew what the answer was going to be. And I said, I'm not sure I know of any other preacher other than Rick Ashley who could have done that the way he did it yeah. last night. He's just gifted, and he's the, he's the common man. He can make the blue-collar worker snap to. I don't, I don't think I I just said that was just a tour de force. It was, I and I I don't know who else Mike could have picked. It was 
it was an inspired choice. Yeah. And uh, he just has a gift for putting you at ease. And But then at the end, when he summed up and said, why haven't we been more com comfortable with this topic? And then he started giving his reasons. We all were saying, yeah, been there. That's me. You're inside my heart. Just that's a gift. And it will be, you know, throughout this week. I mean, is tonight Don McLaughlin? Yeah, out of sight. And tomorrow night, Josh Ross. And ending with now the chairman of our Bible department, Dan Rodriguez. So I hope you'll come back tomorrow and Friday, and we'll talk about the history of the Pepperdine Lectures, and now we'll be dismissed. Thanks for coming. Thank